I want to uh, preach kind of a different sermon to you this morning and one I hope will become a reference point. I leaned over to our sound man and said, make sure you get a clean recording because many years ago I preached a similar sermon and some situations came up and I, I wanted to track it down and the recording was very, very bad. And uh, so I think this is the kind of message you might want to hand to somebody or may come up. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to go there in verse 17. 20. I want you to think about the number 20. Because according to the Center of Disease Control here in America, it says that the length of our church service, which is a Approximately two hours, not, not quite. During this church service, 20 people in America are going to die because of alcohol. In this little two hour church service, in this country, 20 people will die because of alcohol. That adds up to about 88,000 alcohol related deaths in America. Over 10,000 fatalities a year, one-third of all people who die in car accidents die because of drunk driving. Every year, for as long as I've pastored here, I like to preach on the subject of Christmas around this time. And the sermon is not ever about the doctrine of the incarnation. I preach sermons like that. Preach about the Christmas story. And uh, I'm going to do that during the holidays. But I find that it is necessary to preach on the peculiar temptations that are associated with the holiday season. And I believe in Luke 4 where the Bible says that after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness that Satan departed for another season. That the devil operates in seasons and I believe that one of those seasons that he operates in is in the holiday season. That this is a season where sin and temptation is turned up. And that Christians have to be aware of what is in front of them. And the Bible says that the prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. So I want to preach a sermon that I've entitled, Don't Spike your Christmas. And I want to make the case to you this morning up front and unashamedly that I don't believe Christians ought to drink. Ephesians 5 verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, therefore do not be unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us this morning. We desire to do your will. God, we ask you to keep us from temptation and from the evil one. 
God, I pray that we would be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit in such a way that we will not long to be intoxicated with anything from this world. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. Let's begin to talk about the competing spirits of Christmas. And I want to begin by having you consider the history of the holiday season. And so I want to make a point here, and I have to begin by saying this. Jesus Christ was not born on December 25th. I just shocked some of you right there. In fact, he wasn't born in December at all. And we could go into a lot of different reasons why, but I will give you one simple reason why, is that the Bible says that the night Jesus was born, there in Bethlehem were shepherds uh, with their flocks in the field uh, when the heavenly host came and announced the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, You will never find that happening in December. Bethlehem is a mountain town just a few miles from Jerusalem, I've had the privilege of going there on a couple of occasions. And one of the things that strikes you when you go to Jerusalem is that you climb into a mountain where there are evergreen trees. It has reminded me a bit of Flagstaff, Arizona. I know it's not that high, but it kind of reminds you of Flagstaff. It's high, it's got evergreens, and then there are other hills around it. And in one of those hills is the city of Bethlehem. It is cold in December. No shepherd would have his sheep out in an open field uh, there. It didn't happen. Um, Most Bible commentators believe that Jesus was probably born in the fall. And so we ask ourselves then why do we observe the birth of Christ on December 25th? Let me just say here this morning, I have no problem uh, with taking a day and observing the birth of Jesus Christ. That, That is not an issue and that is not wrong. But the reason why December 25th has been chosen is because there was already a winter festival that was in existence. This winter festival was Roman and it was called Saturnalia. It was celebrated long before Jesus Christ walked the earth. And many of the customs that we associate with Christmas were already in place. Garland, uh, decorating uh, things with garland, trees and all of that were already part of this tradition long before Jesus came around. um, And there was another part of this, um, and that is that it was known as a time of indulgence and perversion. uh, As the Julian calendar was coming to an end, uh, it was the idea that this was the time to uh, remove uh, the inhibitions uh, and go on and have a good time. What happened was in the 4th century, uh, when uh, the Emperor Constantine claimed before battle, he lifted his eyes uh, and he saw a cross in the heavens uh, and that God would give them the victory, uh, that he ordered Rome to become Christian. And he thought by simply passing a law, he could change people's hearts. um, And all the people did was simply take their old customs and traditions and put a Christian veneer on top of it. They simply took it. The statues that many of us saw when we were kids as Catholics, St. Peter and St. Mary, those statues existed long before Mary and Peter walked the earth. They simply took uh, Roman gods and gave them Christian names uh, and they took Roman traditions and Roman uh, celebrations and holidays uh, and they simply put a Christian uh, 
template over it. Uh, and that is what we have today. Now, uh, my point here is simply this. And that is that when we move into this season, we are dealing with things other than the Holy Spirit. That we are moving in powerful rhythms and traditions that have existed uh, before Christianity existed. And it's important we understand that. Now, I have the benefit here in San Antonio of associating with, with, with what happens in April here with our fiesta. And how the fiesta celebration has had such an imprint on our city, particularly uh, the inner city, uh, that I have noticed over the years people uh, who have been raised all their life uh, with fiesta, that uh, uh, when that time of the year comes around, uh, if those people don't keep on guard, they get caught up in that spirit and they disappear. Well, imagine that writ large uh, in the larger Christmas holiday uh, where we see so many things um, begin to operate and we scratch our head and say, why would people choose the holidays uh, to sin? Now, this season has both the good and the bad. The reason why I pointed out the, the origins uh, of this holiday season is not to turn you into a Jehovah's Witness. I am not here this morning uh, to... Uh, 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 you know, try to say to you that, you know, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, uh, and just kind of say, well, we're not going to do it. Uh, you know, every year there's a gospel tracts that go around and they condemn people for having trees and, and food and hot chocolate and, and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm not after that this morning. The Apostle Paul said as a Christian, you're going to have to prove all things and hold on to that which is good. Part of being a successful Christian is the ability to look at something and remove what needs to be removed and hold on to what, what may have value. And I believe that's true with these holiday seasons. I believe that they are beneficial and they are good. But at the same time, we must learn how to eat the fish and spit out the bones and be able to separate what is valuable and what is uh, uh, dangerous. And so let me just say for a moment, there are some wholesome Christmas traditions. Not everything with the holiday is evil or an act of idolatry. I think this is a time where families can spend time together and establish uh, wonderful memories for their children. I, for one, like uh, certain traditional foods. I particularly like turkey on Thanksgiving. Amen. I'm looking forward to some Holy Ghost tamales uh, during this period of time. Amen. I like to give gifts and I like to get gifts. Come on now, help me out here this morning. And so I am not uh, talking about, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do uh, is be, uh, if you were in Sunday school, I talked about following Christ uh, means that you are a balanced person. Uh, you are imbalanced uh, if, uh, you know, Christmas season you sit around uh, and just tell your kids idolatry and I'm not giving you any gifts and you're not going to have a tree and you're not going to have any life. You're going to create some very bad memories and you're imbalanced. There are people that I've learned that over the years, they're very, they're Scrooges at this time of the year. They're Grinches whose hearts are too small. And usually it's because they've been disappointed in their own life. Um, they associate it with the excesses that I'm going to talk about in just a minute. And now you're saved, uh, but you go into a funk during the Christmas spirit. And you've got little children and you're going to pass that on to them if you don't watch it. But for the other side of the coin, there are also some dark sides to this holidays. 
There are things that go on during Christmas that are neither wholesome or positive or Christian. This is the age of the office party. This is the age where they go in and they're going to throw, bring out uh, the booths and all of a sudden uh, people are going to lower their inhibitions. Uh, and next thing you know, uh, uh, used to be giving out phone numbers. Now it's your little text message jokes, little flirtations, porn extravaganzas, depression, suicide, debt. And people uh, have somehow, this is the time to, to go crazy. This is a time just to let go all year long. You've, you've tried to do the right thing. You've restrained yourself. But somehow this is done. And we live in a world that encourages you just to, just to let go and go crazy and cast caution to the wind. All in the name of a holiday. That it's not just a, a, a wholesome family, a traditional Christmas. But now uh, it's like, hey, this is the time to get it on. And we're encouraged by that at this very same time as we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you this morning, secondly, about holiday spirits. And I want to focus in this morning on the influence of alcohol. It is without dispute that alcohol plays a prominent role in many people's celebrations. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesians. They are a people that come out of paganism. They are not Christian. They do not have Jewish backgrounds. They have an idolatrous background. They are uh, involved in these Roman celebrations. It's, uh, Ephesus would have been the third city of Rome behind uh, Rome and Alexandria. It would have been a large, dynamic city and was known for their huge festivals. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes these words, is appealing to them, now that you are Christian, you no longer celebrate the way you used to celebrate. Be not drunk with wine. That you and I, doesn't matter what culture we come out of, now that we are Christian, we do not move in that direction because those people came from a culture that was into partying. Think about this morning, our celebration coming in front of us. Do you know that this time of the year, for many of us, is the only time of the year where people actually offer you a drink? Whether it's folded into a rum ball or a rum cake. I've heard of rum tamales, spiked eggnog, a toast of champagne in your job or moving among your family, uh, someone's going to come up to you uh, and say, hey, this time of the year, let's just have something to drink. I'm a pastor. And the pastor, the circle that I run through is very limited, but many of you, this time of the year, you're going to have to make a decision about alcohol. And I want you to know that this is a big deal because this spirit drives all other spirits. You open yourself up to alcohol, you are opening the gateway to all the things that are associated with it. Getting back to the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, it featured the worship of Bacchus. Bacchus was the god of wine. Reverie and drinking go hand in hand. 
and nothing good ever came from it. You know, I know that when you preach on alcohol and you talk about wine, there are people that are quick to say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Ruby, the Bible talks about wine. Wine is very much a part of the story of the Bible. Didn't Jesus turn water into wine? If you do your own study of the Bible, you will never find in the Bible one occasion where somebody got drunk and something good came from it. You will never find it in the Bible. You will find over and over again from the first mention of somebody getting drunk, something bad happened. Now remember, in the Bible, there's what's called the law of first mention. The first time someone or some place or something happened in the Bible, then in that first mention, you will find a truth that will be consistent all through the Bible. Do you know the first person in the Bible that it tells us got drunk was Noah? Noah got drunk after uh, the flood waters had receded uh, and he got out of the ark. Somebody said, you spend that many days packed in a boat with a bunch of animals, you'd want to get drunk too. And the Bible says that he uh, planted a vineyard and then he drank of the vine and he got drunk. And when he got drunk, he got naked. While he was naked, the Bible says that one of his sons came and beheld him. And I'm not going to even go into what the word beheld means there, but it's more than he saw him naked. And the Bible says that uh, Ham went and told his brothers. And when Noah awoke from his drunken state realized what had happened, he went and he cursed Ham and his son Canaan and said, you are going to be slaves forever and ever. And this curse was invoked on his own family because Noah one day got drunk. And when he got drunk, he got naked. I could take you through the Bible we could talk this morning about Vashti, who the Bible says was the queen. One day her husband, again at a party, drunk, begins to brag about how beautiful his wife is, and then sends for her to parade herself naked in front of all these lecherous drunks. And when this woman had enough dignity and self-respect to say, I'm not going to do that, in a drunken fit, he ordered her banished from the kingdom. And the next day when he awoke and he began to realize the stupid decisions he made, he fell into a depression. Belshazzar, the Bible says, who takes the, in a party, drinking one night, decides to go and get out of the treasury the vessels stolen from the Hebrew temple so he could drink out of those vessels. And the Bible says in his middle of his party, the handwriting on the wall comes and says, uh, thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that night, uh, Belshazzar died and Babylon fell out of his drunken stupidity. Listen to Habakkuk chapter two, verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors pouring from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will find you will be filled with shame instead of glory. That's the book of Habakkuk. Men get people drunk 
so that they can take advantage of it. When, you, when you're saying, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it, let me, let me read you again. The scripture says they get people drunk so they can uncover their nakedness. Have you ever heard of ladies' night? You wonder why bars have ladies' night? Ladies, are you that dim that you haven't figured out why they have ladies' night? They have ladies' night because the scripture says they get people drunk to uncover their nakedness. I remember, I think it was Rush Limbaugh that was talking about years ago how they have developed this, this fingernail polish that college girls do, uh, use, so that when they're at a bar or they're at some fraternity and some guy's trying to ply them with liquor and he gives them a drink, they can surreptitiously, you know, just stick their fingernail inside the drink. And if that drink has been uh, 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 mickeyed or, you know, given some sort of drug so that that girl passes out, she can pull her fingernail out and it will change color, telling, us, or telling her that this man is trying to uh, intoxicate you so he can take advantage of you. And I, my response to that is you don't need fingernail polish to figure that out. What do you think he's doing? You think he's some sort of gentleman? Or that you're some sort of lady for going there? Luke 21, Jesus said, watch out. Don't let my sudden come and catch you unaware. Don't let me find you living in careless ease, carousing and drinking. And occupied with the problems of this life like all the rest of the world. Jesus says, when I come back, don't be drinking. Because this is going to affect you. This is never good. It is never good. It is never successful. You will not find it in the Bible. I remember when I first got saved, my brother Fred and I, uh, I'd probably been saved a month, Fred maybe a couple of weeks. My cousin Michael was getting married in Winslow, Arizona. Winslow was a place of deep alcoholism. It's the town that sits right off the Navajo Reservation and the Hopi Reservation and deep alcohol. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. We had barely been saved. I was not always a Christian. By the time I was saved, I'd already had uh, uh, someone who drank very, very often. And my brother also. And so when we were going to this wedding, we knew what we were going into. We knew the liquor would be flowing. It would be a, an indulgent atmosphere. And my brother Ray, who was only saved a few months before us, but knew what we were going, sat us down and had us read the book of Ecclesiastes about rejoicing the days of our youth. But remember, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment and sternly warned us that you got to be careful when you get there because there's going to be lots of temptation to get drunk and I remember we went to this wedding and then we went to the reception and after the food, the liquor began to play, the cumbia band began to play. And Fred and I, bring brand new converts, understood that this is no place for us. And we got up and we got out of that dance, got in our car. We knew there was a fellowship church somewhere in Winslow. Lo and behold, that Friday night, they were in revival service. 
We went to that little revival. There might have been 10 people there, but I'm so glad that they were there. And we went to that revival meeting uh, and got a hold of God uh, because we understood this is no, this is not a place for a Christian to be. See, I believe Satan uses this. I know that when you preach about subjects like this, this is not without controversy in the religious world. There are many people that would say, Pastor Ruby, come on. Is one beer going to send you to hell? Is a glass of wine going to send you to hell? What about moderation in all things? Well, let me ask you something. Is it, is it moderation to look at one picture of pornography? Smoke one joint? One word of profanity? Is that moderation? As long as we're not dancing with a lampshade on our head, it's not that bad. As someone who's been saved for nearly 37 years and been preaching for 33 or so years, I'm telling you this is the issue in the Christian church today. Many people who stopped drinking when they got saved don't have a problem with a glass of wine nowadays. Don't say anything wrong with it. Listen to this. They did a study, 40% of evangelical leaders, pastors, evangelicals, people like us believe you have to be born again. 40% say they socially drink alcohol. 40%. An earlier study of Protestants in the country found that over a quarter of church people, 29% said people should never drink alcohol. 24% of senior pastors agreed. That means people in the church hold to a higher standard than the pastors. 68% of pastors said reasonable consumption of alcohol is a biblical liberty. This is an issue today. Christian people who think this is, this is acceptable. You know, I was interesting. I was reading, uh, I read John D. Rockefeller's biography and he was a Christian man uh, and uh, John D. it talks about when you'd get saved back in the 1800s, it was clearly understood. A Christian doesn't drink. I mean, it was, just, it was the idea that somehow that there was, well, you know, I love the Lord, but I don't see anything wrong with a glass of wine. It didn't even enter their thinking. When I got saved in 1979, I knew a Christian doesn't drink. Now, people say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus drink wine with his disciples? Didn't he turn water into wine? Let me just briefly touch on this. Remember something. They didn't have the sanitation that you and I have today. They, they, you just didn't drink water unless you found a freshwater well, which was extremely precious. And so they drank from the fruit of the vine because it was safe and it had lots of health benefits. They preserved that so that it would last a long time. And absolutely over time, through fermentation, you could have gotten drunk. That's why in the Bible you find the admonition not given to much wine. When the Bible says that a pastor's wife shouldn't be given to much wine, doesn't mean that only two drinks and that's it. It's referring to the fact that if you would have drank it long enough or enough of it, eventually it would have that effect on you. But to suggest that a wine from the first century is equivalent to your wine cooler or to your Bud Light is absolutely ridiculous. 
Proverbs says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There are those that say that, well, drinking is a cultural experience. That all this is, is American prohibition. Pay attention to Budweiser every time when they begin to point out the obvious that tens of thousands of people every year die in America because of alcohol and alcohol-related accidents and all the tragedies. And finally, they turn their eyes to the big beer makers and wine makers and distillers of spirits here in America. And they begin to ask them. They always have the same response. That's nothing more than the old prohibition. America tried that uh, in 1920. It didn't work. Uh, it'll never work. And on and on and on. And that's all you people are. And we believe in moderation. Let me tell you something. Budweiser doesn't make it their money off moderation drinkers. The makers of Jack Daniels do not make it because the last thing they want is people to moderate their alcohol consumption. I remember years ago, I used to hear that, well, in other countries, they're not as hung up on this. You go to England, all the Christians drink. And you go, to, you go everywhere, all the Christians drink. Well, I've had the privilege of preaching all over the world many times. And every Christian I know there doesn't drink at all. I go to Russia where, I mean, that vodka flows in that country. But the Christians I know there don't drink and, and they look at you. Are you out of your mind after what alcohol has done to you? Are you kidding me? It's okay for a Christian to drink. Are you out of your mind? I remember David Wilkerson wrote a great book about drinking. And in this book, he told a story about his brother who was an alcoholic who had been radically converted and traveled with him one time to England. And in their meeting, there were a lot of Christian leaders there. And David Wilkerson had his brother just give his testimony. And his brother testified about having been alcoholic and having been powerfully delivered and never drinking anymore. And when he was done, in Wilkerson's mind, he thought people would be like, amen, amen. Instead, it was completely quiet. Because an alcoholic got up and said, I'm a Christian now, I don't drink anymore. Every Christian that's had a real conversion experience remembers the first time somebody offered them liquor and they said no. Every one of them will be able to tell you the story about after having been saved, maybe it was a family member, maybe it was somewhere, job or some celebration, and somebody threw a beer at you or offered you and you said, no, I'm a Christian. I remember when I first got saved, been saved a couple of weeks. I didn't know any better. You know, I mean, I'm saved and I went to a party. Back when I was a kid, a party in high school was measured by how many kegs of beer were at the party. And I ran and I filled up my cup full of beer and I walked around with that cup and I witnessed to everybody about Jesus and how he saved my soul. I'm there, I'm witnessing, I'm talking about how Jesus is coming back. And finally, uh, one of my friends was there. They're arguing with me. And he said, if you really believe what you believe, you wouldn't have that beer in your hand. And I said, you know what? You're right. And I poured it out. Because even sinners know this. While Christians want to dance around and justify it. Heather Anderson called the other day. And I don't know how it came up, but I mentioned to Heather that I was preaching on this subject. And she told me, she said, you know, my father every time he would come visit me, would always want to bring a, a bottle of wine or we'd go out and want to order wine, would always ask me to serve him liquor and I would always decline. And she said, for 20 years that went on, after 20 years, uh, he said, Heather, you know why I did that? Because I was testing you. 
because all the other Christians I know drink. Heather mentioned, uh, uh, she also mentioned that there in South Africa that she was dealing with a young African girl who was fornicating. It's very common there, fornication. And she said she was dealing with this girl and this girl said, what about you white Christians in South Africa? That's how they look at things. They say, what about you white Christians? You all drink. Because even sinners know that Christians shouldn't drink. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Listen to this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has babbling? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. They that go seek mixed wine. Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright. At last it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will behold strange women and your heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, you shall be as he that lies down in the midst of the sea or as he that lies upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, you shall say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. Five truths about drinking from that passage of scripture. Number one, there's a demonic dimension to alcohol. The scripture says it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. It bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. And you can do your own study of serpents and vipers in the Bible and you will discover that it's referring to spiritual powers. There's more than chemistry involved here, friend. Generations of alcoholics. I'm preaching to a church where many of you have been touched by alcohol in your, either your life or in your family. And you know that this goes way beyond chemistry. There are spiritual powers that are released and doors that are open. And the enemy exploits when people drink. Number two, alcohol leads to perversion. Your eyes will behold strange women. When you drink, you unleash the old nature. Words like drinking and debauchery are, are associated together. It means to be debased. The idea is that when people drink, they, they give in to their old or their animal nature. The boundaries, the self-restraint that people have on themselves, those restraints are loosed. And people begin to act out uh, uh, and in many, many different ways. The Bible says they ate and drank and then they rose up to play and they weren't playing volleyball. A bumper sticker said, the drunker I get, the better you look. And the truth is that uh, when people begin to drink, uh, their moral uh, stands fall. Not only that, when you drink, you expose the worst part of yourself. You may look good this morning, but believe me, there's a worst part of yourself. Alcohol lessens inhibitions. Verse 33, your heart shall utter perverse things. If you don't believe me, talk to our police officers that are here this morning. Ask these men how many times they're called to a domestic dispute, and that dispute at its root, somebody is drunk. They may have gone for the holidays uh, and they hug uh, and everything. But once they start drinking uh, in an hour or two, uh, what is inside of them starts coming out of them. Favoritism in the family, uh, an unpaid debt, uh, an old violation. Uh, and the next thing you know, the police are there uh, because that alcohol uh, has removed those inhibitions and their heart has begun to utter perverse things. Number four, alcohol destroys your body. Alcohol destroys your body. The scripture says you will, lie, uh, will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. 
I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many people here have bowed down before the little white throne and vomited. How many people's bodies have been destroyed? The scripture says, uh, uh, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. You know what dissipation means? It means excess. It means to, it's the idea of destruction in your body. Years ago, I remember going to Amsterdam for the first time. And coming from the 70s, I had heard the stories about Amsterdam as the hippies' uh, uh, Garden of Eden. Drugs were legalized. Uh, it was an amoral society. It was filled with sin. Anything goes in Amsterdam. And I remember when we went and they took us to this city and I'm looking at the, these hollow eyes. I'm looking at these emaciated bodies and the stringy hair. And these are drug addicts and alcoholics and people that simply went all out uh, into sin. And you see the dissipation. You see the life that has flown, gone out of them. And the apostle says, listen, that is not the will of God for a Christian. Finally, alcohol is addictive. The scripture says that after all of this, I will arise and I will seek it again. See, every alcoholic can tell you how alcohol has ruined their life, destroyed their marriage, destroyed their finances. Ruin their relationships with their children. But they can't stop. Oh no, I can just have one or two. That's why you're upset right now. Because you can't stop. I had it, oh, you know, I only do it for this and it's just, I don't see anything wrong with a glass of wine because it doesn't become a glass of wine. devastates people's lives. Somebody said, I do not drink alcoholic beverages for one major reason. My conduct might cause someone else who is weak to stumble. In a country where there are at least 20 million problem drinkers and millions of others who use alcohol to excess, Christians just cannot stand by and say, I can drink alcoholic beverages because the Bible does not say not to. My conduct should be governed by the law of love. Alcoholism is addictive. And I'm preaching to a group of people that know this all too personally. Let me close and talk to you about celebrating Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul didn't just say, be not drunk with wine. His argument really wasn't, don't drink wine, and that's it. Here's the rule. But he understands the deeper issue. Why do you want to drink? Why do you need something to take the edge off? Why do you have to lose your inhibitions? Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. On one hand, he says, listen, there's an alternative He's saying, listen, I'm not saying live a void, dry, empty life. He's saying if you don't understand that Christianity includes the power and the joy of the Holy Spirit, then it's an indictment that the reason why you even seek alcohol is because you are empty. 
Because you are dry. Why do you think people drink? They drink not because it tastes good, because liquor doesn't taste good. They drink it for the effect. Because they want to experience, they want their conscience to be altered. They want to feel better about themselves and about life. And so I've got to get something out of a bottle or out of a pill or out of a cigarette that's going to make me feel better. And the Apostle Paul says, why does a Christian need that to feel better? When there's the power and the life of the Holy Spirit that is working inside the life of a believer, and it translates, the scripture says, into psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. This is not some religious musical. What he is saying is, uh, why not let the Holy Ghost be so real in your life uh, that it causes something out of you? you know, listen, folks, you are going to have a hard time serving God if you never talk about Jesus. If all your conversation is about sports or politics uh, or pop culture and you can talk for hours but you never talk about Jesus, uh, you're dry. And being dry, you're going to start looking at the wine and saying, you know what, I want to feel something in my life. And he says, listen, you don't need to go through alcohol to get that. The power of the Holy Ghost is available. Think about this. Don't become carnal this Christmas. You and I are headed towards a season of temptation. Why go there at your weakest point? Why be so busy with, with all these Christmas things? You don't have time for church and time for prayer because you're too busy after season when you need to be the strongest. Today, drugs now, we call alcohol a form of medication. I've had people say to me, well, I don't want to take anxiety pills, so I'm going to drink wine. Well, why do you have to take anxiety pills or drink wine? It's the medical marijuana mentality. If you would have told me about medical marijuana when I was a teenager, I'd have thought you were from Cheech and Chong. That's how stupid it sounds. I was talking about the sermon of my brother Ray and he was telling me about somebody uh, I think that goes to his church that was sick, uh, that had fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia means you're hurting but you don't know why you're hurting. And so you go in there and the doctor, you know, what's he going to do? There's no physiological reason why you're in pain. That's why it's fibromyalgia. And so a, a medical doctor, a guy that, that has gone to medical school, did his residency, has the nice big uh, 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 certificates on his wall. He's a physician and he recommends medical marijuana. Who would have ever thought we'd be in a day when it's a man of science would say to somebody, well, maybe you ought to consider medical marijuana. Do you understand what marijuana does when you smoke and you bring stuff like that into your body? What doctor, how many doctors would recommend, you need to smoke a cigarette? The age of medicating ourselves by getting stoned. And Lander said, people who drink to drown their sorrow should be told that sorrow knows how to swim. Jesus said, be careful because the unclean spirit moves into an empty house. 
well, you know, Pastor Ruby, I'm just, I'm just thinking about having a glass of wine, you know, and just relaxing. An unclean spirit moves into an empty house. Pass on godly memories. I'm going to take a couple extra minutes today. I was told a story about a man attending one of our churches. Got saved, got touched him. Served God, lived for God for a period of time, and then he backslid. Whatever the reasons, I don't know. He backslides and he goes back to his old life, and before long, he has his alcohol back. A few years have gone by now. One day, one of his teenage boys gets into his alcohol. These are boys born in church, dedicated on the altar. But now they have a backslidden father who has a collection of alcohol. And his teenage boy breaks in, gets stoned with his friends. They go cruising, get in a car accident, and die. One of those 20 I'm talking about. And a broken father who said, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. When I got saved, I came from an alcoholic family. My grandfather died at the age of 46 from alcohol, cirrhosis of the liver. Three of his sons, my uncles, died of alcohol, cirrhosis of the liver. My father had enough sense to get out of Winslow. Thankfully, he wasn't an alcoholic, but by the time... I was 13 years old, I got alcoholic poisoning, nearly died. When I'm 13 and I'm chugging down this bottle of rum, I have no idea I'm walking in a curse. I have no idea. I'm just a stupid 13-year-old with a few other boys and somebody swiped a bottle from his father. I have no idea. If you'd have thought curse... Grandfather died of this, uncles died of this, cousins have died of this. Here we are, a bunch of teenage boys, drugs and alcohol have become our life. We are walking in the curse. There are 19 boys in my generation in my family. 14 of those boys had to go to rehab for drug and alcohol addictions. Several of them are dead already because of it. And God touches me, delivers me. And when I became a Christian, it's like, drink, have a beer, drink a bottle. Why are you kidding me? I'm free. About 10 years ago, I got a phone call from Tucson. A man I know said, I just want you to know that Gabe Rodriguez is dying in the hospital. Gabe Rodriguez is one of my best friends, one of my very best friends. When I got saved, Gabe was one of those young men that I drank with when we were 13. And when I got saved, I witnessed him many, many times. And he went his way, I went mine. I remember when he got married, actually, Yolanda and I were dating and I took her to their wedding. And of course, we went in different directions. I remember Gabriel once telling me that his goal in life was to get a job with the city, 
marry his girlfriend. And then he said, on Fridays, you guys can come over to my house and drink beer. That was his ambition in life. And guess what? He fulfilled his ambition. But now he's 42 years old and he's dying. And so they gave me a number, St. Mary's Hospital, called his room. When I called his room, I prepared to talk to his mother, try to remind her who I was. And when the phone rang, it's Gabriel. And I'm like, Gabe. And the first thing he said is, hey, Rich, we have not spoken in probably 20 years. And he immediately recognized my voice. And I said, Gabriel, what's happening? In his words, remember when you got saved? He goes, I never stopped drinking. And now my liver's failed. I'm dying. So I talked to him. I led him to Jesus. I prayed for him. The man that knows him in Tucson called me and said that Gabriel got better. He's out of the hospital. A few months later, he went back in and he died. Remember when you got saved and you stopped drinking? It's the power of the gospel. Don't be drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads. No one's moving about for a minute. You know, you may have came along to this service to your visitor and The, the, the lesson the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate is there's something better than what this world has to offer. You may not be a drinker this morning, but you would have to agree with me that we live in a world of drunks. It's out of control. If in this little church service, 20 people in our country have died because of something that did not have to happen, but by choice, every hour, 10 people die. A scourge. If this happened in a war, we would be crying out. But it doesn't. The apostle says you do this because there's this emptiness in your life that you're trying to feel by experience and feeling. You're going to use chemistry to change some things about your life. And he says, What do you do? Be filled with the Spirit. Make melody in your heart. This, the Spirit is not just a, a nice doctrine. It's not just some, some nice little Bible saying. God can become real to you. He can give you power. He can give you peace where there's anxiety. He can give you fulfillment and satisfaction. Men settle for a cheap in, imitation. Maybe you're in this building today and you're not a Christian. You're not right with God. He loves you this morning. I'm not here to talk about religion or joining a church. I'm here to tell you that he can forgive your sin, that he can change your life, that he can make you brand new, that he can become very real to you, not just a nice fairy tale. I'm talking about the power of God that can change a person's life. When I gave my life to Jesus, 
I had been living for experience. I've been pursuing wholeheartedly all the things the world said I needed to have to, to find some sort of excitement or thrill. But when I bowed my knee to Jesus and I found Christ, I found in him what this world could never, ever offer me. While our heads are bowed, I wonder if there's any in this building that would say, Pastor Ruby, I'm not right with God. I need forgiveness. I need God to become real in my life. If that's you, while our heads are bowed, I'm going to ask you to do something right now, just to raise your hand and put it up high where I could see it. And by raising your hand, you're saying, I need prayer, Pastor. I want to give my life to Christ. Would you pray for me? Lift up your hand all around this building just for a minute. You're not right with God. God's dealing with you. You say, I'm not right with God. I need prayer. Lift up your hand. Before we move on to other things, I want to give you an opportunity to be saved. Would you respond? Pray for me. I'm not saved. I'm not right with God. Or maybe you're backslidden. You walked with God at one time, but you've backslidden. You've gone your own way. God's dealing with you. Amen. God bless you. Lift up your hands. Pastor, I want to get my heart right with God this morning. Before we do anything else, God bless you. Thank you. Who else? Would you respond? Here's my hand. Pray for me. Hands have gone up. Thank you. Who else? Anybody else? Before we move on. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Pray for me. We're going to, we're going to believe God. Anybody else? I want every one of you that lifted your hand just to lift your hand. Look at me just for a minute. I want to pray. For you. Come on, brother. I want to pray for you. Right over here, man. Would you come? You have your hand lifted. And over here on my right, you lifted your hand. I want to invite you to come. God's going to help you. Praise God. These are coming. Bless you. Good to see you this morning. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask you to kneel right here. I want you to come. Anybody else? You know, I know that this sermon is really more of a statement. But I will tell you this. This is not the time to be carnal. This is not the time to be weak. This is not the time to lower your guard and say, you know what, I'm going to no, no, this is a time to be filled with the Spirit. Time to let the Word of God and what God's doing be spoken of. A time to worship. I want to encourage you to go into this season at your spiritual peak. Your mouth and your words have a lot to do with that. You don't have to drink from the vine of this world, folks. Be not drunk with the wine, but be filled with the Holy Ghost. There are Christians here, you are being tempted to drink, and you're being tempted. And the reason why is because your house is empty. Paul says, it's not supposed to be empty. Be filled with the Spirit. Say, Pastor Ruby, you know what? I come to church, you know, and I know I should, but I don't feel anything. I don't have any joy. I don't. This is not some mystical thing. It's getting on our knees. It is lifting our voice and saying, God, fill me with your spirit. I choose you. I choose to drink from your well. I choose your power in my life. And I have to make a decision. I have to go to this well. I've got to drink from it. And if you're not there, then get there and make that choice. Let's stand together. I'm going to open these altars. I want to invite you to come down and find a place to pray. We're going to worship God this morning. I need you more, more 
than yesterday I need you more More than words can say I need you more Than ever before I need you Lord I need you Lord I need you Yesterday, I need you more. More than words can say, I need you more than ever before. I need you, Lord. I need you, Lord. 